Hey everybody, welcome. My name is Steve Fenning. I'm one of the leaders here at The Forge and it's my pleasure to welcome you to The Forge podcast. Uh, We're involved in a series called GoPro, seeing life through a new lens. And I hope that over these next 30 minutes, you're able to sit back and enjoy and I hope that you find it helpful. Cool, that, isn't it? I love this series that we do here at The Forge, and I love that at the start of each series, we tend to have a little bit of a video bump like that. Alex does a great job uh, in pulling those together each time, and so Alex, thanks for that uh, again. And I think it really sums up the mood of the series, the idea that anyone can go pro, as it were. They can get the little camera with the lens and uh, so forth. They can strap it either to the end of a surfboard or on a bike or on themselves or on the car or whatever it is, and they can look professional. And so last year, I went out skiing for the first time, and I thought, hey, this would be really cool. I can go. Pro. So I went to Alex, I said, Alex, can I borrow your GoPro? And we got it all sort of insured and everything like that. Uh, and I bought it out and I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to look like just like some of those scenes there. I'll get the cool jumps and everything else. This is how it turned out instead. Here I am going up, ready for the big jump. Are we ready for it? There I am on the floor. Here's another one going rapidly down the hill and clonk. There he goes. That one hurt. If you look carefully, you can see the 50-pound damage on the ski that I caused flying up into the air, and that was the last of my food money gone. There we are. So it doesn't actually make you go pro, just as a little caveat. Uh, it is just there. But when I went on my skiing holiday, I went with my friend Andy. Uh, Andy I met several years ago when I was at Moreland's, when I was at university. Um, uh, Andy, we have so many good stories. We try and meet up uh, fairly regularly. Normally, once a year, we'll go on a big adventure. And like all good friends, I like to think we've got some cool stories we can look back and laugh at. Whether it's hiding from an angry Orthodox nun in a Greek Orthodox church, or whether it's catching fish uh, and then accidentally illegally barbecuing them, uh, whatever it is, uh, we have some really fun stories we can look back on. And when preparing this series for GoPro, looking life at life through a lens, uh, looking at this relationship of friendship, I was overwhelmed actually at recognizing there are some really key people in my life who I am really honored to call friends. And I want to introduce you to some of them to start. Andy's one of them. Another one is my housemate, Sam. Now, this is a picture of about 10 years ago, which I'm never going to let him forget. He's learned how to pose in pictures since. Um, He was the guy doing that, so he's had a really great uh, Sunday so far for all of you to look at. I'm really good friends with Sam to the degree that I actually live with Sam. Uh, We cook for one another, we share with one another, uh, we actually pray with one another uh, on occasions as well. And Sam has been someone who uh, I've known for a long time now but would have complete trust in. Uh, We would joke around all of the time. Another friend I've got is a guy called Dave Hanna. Many of you will know Dave as well. Uh, Dave is someone who I've known in some capacity along with his wife, who I'm really good friends with as well, Emily, in some capacity for about 10 years. Dave is one of those rare people in my life who can comment on anything I do, any area of my life he can speak into positively or negatively or constructively, and there will be no part of me that feels like I need to get defensive. He just has complete permission to speak into me in that way, and I'm so grateful for him. Another friend I've got is a guy called Russell. Russell I met uh, when we first launched I. Uh, I didn't know him when we launched I, but we, uh, we were um, in our launch meetings at the Bank Cafe, if you know that uh, cafe there in I. And there was a, another guy who was opening up the building for us each week. And then on maybe the third week, Russell came to unlock for us. And he came to me and he said, ah, oh, you must be Johnny. And I went, yeah, I'm Johnny. He said, ah, oh, yeah, the other guy said, you look like a fat Harry Potter. And I... <laughs> Thanks, but somehow, like through the grace of all that is good, Russell became a friend, 
we meet up every week, we read the Bible together, we pray with one another, we share with one another, uh, and we eat breakfast, we eat a lot of breakfast together. Uh, and so Russell's become a really good friend. And then last, but by no means least, Chris. Uh, Chris, I've been meeting up with, uh, maybe on maybe slightly more of a formal basis, but certainly less formally now, uh, maybe once every other week. Uh, Chris is someone who we have this phrase, we can share the last 5% with one another. You know that you have those people and you can share things with them, but there'll always be that maybe that 20%, you're like, I'm not gonna let you into actually what I really think or where that comes from or what the motivation is or what I'm really feeling. Chris is someone and we just say we can share the last 5% with one another uh, and that's just been such a good uh, friendship to build. I mean he's probably been one of the key influences in how to lead a church uh, and, and all that that means for me. So these are some of my friends but there's something that all of these people, all these guys have in common with one another when it revolves around my friendship is that I get to decide whether we're friends or not. Seems like kind of a weird thing to say, and, and they all can decide whether they're friends with me or not. And when you look at friendship, it's actually quite a unique relationship in comparison to some of the other relationships we've been looking at throughout this series, because you have complete choice over who you're friends with. There's actually a relatively not much difficulty uh, or, um, uh, or, yeah, or reaction that's going to happen if you decide not to be friends with someone or to be friends with someone. I mean, it's not like marriage, for example. Marriage is based on the premise uh, that you can uh, give a certain set of promises, a certain a certain sense of, um, of well-being or a certain sense of uh, occasion or ceremony that you have with people that you know. And ultimately, those promises say, whatever you do, whatever you do, I ain't leaving. Well, I mean, if you manifest certain things about you, I mean, that's not going to affect this. Like, we're still going to walk together. There's a security within marriage. Ultimately, it is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship. Friendship's not like that. I mean, if you walk away from a friendship, there's far less consequences. With marriages, you can walk away from them, but it seems to be far more destructive, doesn't it? I mean, so that's one. It's, it's not a covenant relationship. It's certainly uh, not a compulsory one either. A compulsory relationship where it's like a family relationship. I mean, you can like your family, you can loathe your family, you can find difficulties with your family, you can try and ignore your family, but when Christmas comes, their family is there. It's very difficult to try and detach yourself from a family because it's compulsory. It's, it's not something that you have a choice over. Friendship's not like that. No one can make you be friends with anybody. And it's not a contractual relationship either. I mean, you can have a little bit more flexibility over who you choose to work with, but if you're somebody who thinks you can go through birth to death and you can only work with people you're always going to like and get on with, that's going to be a little bit tricky for you. I mean, even if you're a boss, you don't hire people depending on whether you're friends or not normally. You tend to uh, hire on whether they're going to be good for a job. It's a contractual thing. Friendship's not like that. Ultimately, it is a complete choice on who you become friends with. And here's the kicker, and here is the tension that we often find ourselves in. Why is it? that so many of us, or maybe so many of the people that we know, find ourselves in a wrong crowd. How is it that we can find ourselves in a wrong crowd? I mean, many of us would have heard that testimony, right? From people that we know. People who are going down a particular route, everything was going fairly well for them, but then something happened and they got into a wrong crowd. The thing is about wrong crowds, no one realizes it's a wrong crowd until they also realize that maybe they're part of the problem too. 
No one ever looks at a crowd and thinks, oh yeah, this is gonna be really bad for my life. I'm gonna become friends with them. No one ever recognizes that. And when they're in those wrong crowds, they can be completely oblivious to it being a wrong crowd. And that should scare us a little bit because many of us, if not most of us, if not all of us, will be sitting here thinking, that ain't me. I'm not in a wrong crowd of people. My friends are perfectly fine. I'm totally okay. And what we don't consider is that you might be the problem. Or maybe you could be completely obliviously in a wrong crowd. When we think of these testimonies, or these stories around people being in a wrong crowd, we often associate it with drink or drugs or criminal activity. I wanna suggest for a moment that maybe there are things in your life or those uh, around you which might be slightly more invisible but perhaps equally as toxic. Maybe you're in a wrong crowd of people where there is a culture of jealousy around you and all of you are competing against one another and if someone has something, you've got to have it too or better. And if someone gets something, then you've got to get that. Or if someone goes somewhere, you've got to go somewhere better. And there seems to be this unspeakable, unwillable game of comparison amongst you that's causing this toxicity within your friendships. Maybe for you it's gossip and all of your conversations seem to have negative connotations for other people. But all of the conversations revolve around who did what, and who did who, and who said what, and who thought this, and who said that, and there are rumors and rumors and rumors of people in which aren't particularly good for you, and you might be completely obliviously in a wrong crowd. Maybe for you, it's a negativity or a victimhood where every time you meet with people, it's always to discuss about how the world is against you. And actually, nothing productive comes of those conversations, but it's always just about how everything is wrong and everything is wrong. It's quite a challenging one and certainly a difficult one to try and recognize within uh, yourself. But actually, maybe that's a culture in which you're part of. Maybe for you, it's crudeness. Maybe there's a relationship or friendship group you're part of, and you start to say things and laugh at things and be part of things that you just know you never intended to stoop to that level. And maybe that's even starting to affect your thoughts and your thought processes or your marriage or your finance or whatever it is, which will ultimately affect your actions. Often we can find ourselves in a wrong crowd of people without even recognizing it. Craig Rochelle says it like this. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. The crowd in which you hang out with, you will ultimately become like. I love this. I think this is really great. But what's interesting about it is that it actually comes from a thought from thousands of years ago from a place in the Old Testament that was written by one of the early kings of Israel, a man called Solomon who was known for being really, really wise. He creates this book called Proverbs. If you're unfamiliar with the Christian faith or the Bible, the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, how to become wise. And this is what Solomon wrote effectively a very similar thing. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And maybe you are currently in a place where you are in a companion of fools, or maybe you are even the fool yourself. But when it's so invisible, when it's so difficult to pick up on in your own life, and you see other people and it's easy to see their mistakes, it's easy to see their problems, it's so hard to see ourselves, how do you recognize a companion of fools? And that's what we're gonna look at. That's what we're gonna wrestle with a little bit uh, today. The question we're gonna look at is this. What do you do when you find yourself in a companion of fools? 
To do that, I want to look at a man called Job. Job's story is written, and it's called Job. You'll find it again in the Old Testament. It's actually probably one of the oldest bits of literature you have in the Bible. It probably even predates Genesis, but it's bunked in the middle with the rest of these books like Proverbs because it's known as wisdom literature. Again, it's there to teach us to some degree how to be wise. Now, Job's story, if you read it or if you get to read it or maybe you have read it, you'll quickly recognize it's an incredibly strange narrative. I mean, it talks initially of this man called Job. He's incredibly wise. He's got all this good stuff about him. He's incredibly rich and well-off as well. He's got a great family. He's got great health. And then the narrative changes a little bit into the heavenly realms. And God is sitting on his throne, and Satan enters into God's presence. And often we might think of this, just as an offshoot, as Satan being a massive sort of equal force coming into an equal force of God. This wouldn't have been like this. This would have been like if this whole room was the throne and presence of God, Satan entering would have been like a speck of dust just by the grace of God not being destroyed. And Satan comes into the presence of God and he challenges God. He comes to God and says, he almost challenges his sense of justice. And he, he goes to God and he says, God, in a couple of different occasions, you see this man, Job? See this man, Job, the only reason he worships you, the only reason he honors you is because he has everything that he wants. He has the health, he has the family, he has the stuff. Take that away, he ain't worth nothing. And so God, and he probably raises more questions and answers through doing this, but God somehow gives Satan permission to do what he wants to Job on the condition he doesn't kill him. And what we find is that Satan strips Job of all of his things, his health, his family, his possessions. And we reach this point in the book of Job where Job is sitting down in the dust, covered in sores, like full of pain, just wishing his own death upon him. And he's sitting there in all this pain and three friends arrive. And it's through these three friends that I want to recognize a few different aspects of how you can identify a fool from a friend. Because these three friends actually show a little bit of both. They show a little bit of both. They actually first start off by showing us this. You can identify a friend because when you give them bad news, they will listen. You can tell a friend from a foe by, giving the, by when you give them bad news, they will listen. And this is what Job's friends initially do. I want to read it to you. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy that he had suffered, they got up together and traveled from their homes to console him. Their names were Elphaz, uh, the Temanite, uh, Bilidad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. And then, and this is the important bit, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one said a word to Job, for they saw his suffering was too great for words. Genius. Here's something that I've learned recently. I say recently, probably over the last five years, whilst working for a church in whatever capacity. When people come up to me and they say, look, there's something going on in someone else's life, and it's really difficult, and I have no idea what to do. What on earth do I do? Here's the answer. You show up and you shut up. Show up and shut up. Let me tell you, 80, maybe 90, maybe even more percent of the pastoral difficulties that come to me, I have no idea how to deal with. Genuinely, I'm not an expert in any of them. I haven't been trained in a lot of them. And yet what most people are looking for is not something to be fixed, but something to be felt. 
When you turn up to someone's place and there's all sorts of going wrong, we try and avoid it because we think the emphasis will come on us to fix it. Let me tell you, that our good friend, when they receive bad news, they listen. They don't try and fix. There's nothing worse than outpouring a whole bunch of difficult stuff that's going on in your life only to be told other bad stuff that's happening in someone else's life about how it's even worse and how you can get over it and it'll all be okay or giving meaningless bits of advice that you're just never going to be able to follow. I've got a friend and we met up uh, a couple of months ago and there are a fair few difficult things going on in her life and we were uh, sitting in the pub and she was sort of sharing this with me and we have the sort of nature of this relationship where I can just sort of say, hey, listen, like I don't mean to be really unpastoral, but is this a listening problem or is this an advising problem? And in her grace was just like, actually, this is just something you need to listen to. Like, this is just something you need to hear. And so after a few days, they then came back and they said, actually, now I need a bit of advice. Now I need to hear something. Listen, a good friend, you can tell them bad news and they will listen. What Job's friends do is brilliant because they listen first. It all goes wrong for for Job's friends when they start opening their mouths. They start accusing Job of different things. They start accusing God of different things. And at the very end of the story, they end up being rebuked and they look like a whole bunch of numpties just because they opened their mouth. If they just kept quiet with a hand on his shoulder, maybe it would have been a very different book and a very different story for Job. The second way you can identify a friend from a fool is this. You can tell a friend good news and they will help you celebrate. Sounds fairly simple. Sounds fairly simple. At the end of this book of Job, his friends are mentioned one last time. You can almost miss it. I want to read it to you now. Because at the end of the story, what happens is that God gives Job back. He rewards Job twice over from what he ever had. So he had a whole bunch of camels and sheep and family and and money and the rest of it. And God just blesses that twice over from what he ever had. And at the end, this is what happens. When Job prayed for his friends, which I think is brilliant, after all of their accusations, after all of the difficulties, Job still prays for them. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers brothers, sisters, and former friends came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And then, uh, and each of them bought him a gift of money and a gold ring. The sign of a good friend is somebody who celebrates with you and for you when good things happen to you without a hint of jealousy, without a hint of insecurity, without a hint of guile or misled direction or anything like that. Any hidden agenda is gone. Some of you might now be friends with someone, or dare I say, some of you might be a friend to someone else, where you constantly feel the need to drag someone back from their successes just to make yourself feel slightly better about yourself because of a fear or an insecurity or whatever it is. Let me tell you, if that is somebody else, they are not being a friend to you. And if you are doing that to someone else, you are not being a friend to them. This can be uh, seen for me whenever I go to a stag do. Now, this is not me saying I don't like playful banter or making fun of people for good reason or whatever it is, um, as you can see with my picture of Sam or whatever it is. But I find whenever I go to a stag do, they can often sit in one of two camps. The best stag do's I've ever been to is when the best man unapologetically makes the whole day to celebrate the groom. 
He does the things that the groom likes. They laugh together. They make the jokes that the groom knows. They go to things. They do things. The whole thing is a celebration and a raising up to say, we value you. The most awkward, the most difficult ones that I've been to uh, are the complete opposite to that. An insecurity gets in the way. A fear gets in the way or whatever it is. And the day doesn't become around the groom anymore. And it becomes about something else or someone else. And it just becomes awkward. A good friend can tell a friend bad news and they will listen. You can tell a friend good news and they will help you celebrate. Ultimately, a good friend does this. They want the best for the best part of you. Think about for a moment when you have been at your best. Think about when you've been at your best financially, the best within your marriage, the best at work, the best at whatever it is. Think about the people who helped you get there and think about the people who helped you stay there. Think about the advice that you listened to and who that came from. And think about the people that tried to stand in your way and block that for whatever reason. Think about the people who were threatened by that. The best friends are the people who want the best for the best part of you. And so the question remains. What do you do when you find yourself in a company of fools? What do you do when you find yourself in the wrong crowd? And this is where I think it becomes slightly difficult for Christians, because there seems to be this tension in Jesus's life on what he sort of recommends. There are times in Jesus's life, where, in fact, most of Jesus's life, if not all of Jesus's life, he spends time with people which we would never choose to spend time with. Not only that, he probably spends time with people that we would spend our whole lives trying to avoid. I mean, he spends a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners, the, the religious people of the time. There are times that you find in the accounts of Jesus where they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what are you doing with this scum? I mean, that's like a horrible word, but that's what they call the people that Jesus spent time with. Jesus spent time with people that were nothing like him. In fact, his closest followers were people that he raised up to go and launch the church. You look in the Old Testament and David was very similar. King David the group of people that he had around him, his mighty men, you read in 2 Samuel uh, 22, uh, verse 22, I can remember because it's all the twos, but I'm never sure which order. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. He reads that there's a whole bunch of difficult people, these bandits, these unwise, these, these untrustworthy people, and he makes them into an army. And yet on the other side of things, we read in the account written by Matthew of Jesus' life, he writes down everything that happens in Jesus' life, and he says, Jesus once got together all of his followers and he sent them out to go and befriend different people, meet different people, and tell them a little bit about who Jesus is. And he sort of says there, he says, listen, it's going to be inevitable. There are going to be really core cool relationships which just aren't going to fit anymore. I mean, there are going to be mothers and daughters who are going to sort of be split from one another. There are going to be fathers and sons that aren't going to work together. He even says at one point, he says, if you go into a household, if you go into a household and they don't listen to you or welcome you, it just says, wipe the dust from your feet and leave. And I mean, it just doesn't sound like Jesus when you look at the rest of the things he does. There is another point in Jesus's life where he's followed by a whole bunch of people and Jesus starts speaking and a whole bunch of different people leave. And what's weird is that Jesus doesn't chase after them and try and change what he says. He just turns to those who kept with him and says, what about you? Are you going to leave? Are you going to go? I mean, it just sort of seems, well, what do you do with the fool? Do you try and wipe the dust of your feet or do you try and embrace them completely? And for me, I think the answer comes down to a single word and that word is influence. You have to work out where the influence lies with those around you. Where does the influence lie? For some of you, 
You will be choosing to spend time with people who are taking you further away from God than you are pulling them towards God. For some of you, people will be having more of a negative effect on your life, pulling you in a direction you don't want to be, rather than you pulling them into a place where you do want them to be. Some of you need to have an awkward conversation. And it is an awkward conversation, but let me tell you, it can be a majestic conversation when you come and stand towards them and just say, listen, when I'm with you, I'm not who I want to be. I don't feel like all the time you're someone who wants the best for me because I end up doing these things and we've got to try and work this out together or we've got to try and do something differently. And so the question remains, what do you do with people that are difficult but are just difficult? What do you do with the difficult friends in your life? The answer comes back in Proverbs with the wise Solomon who gives us all this literature. He says this in Proverbs 17. Verse seven, uh, Proverbs 17, verse 17. He says this, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. Let me tell you, this is brilliant, but so complex at the same time. It's so easy to know what the right thing is to do, but so difficult and complex to do it. What do you do when there's another phone call with another tearful voice for the third day running? A friend loves at all times. What do you do when the friend makes the same mistake against you again and again and again and needs help again and again and again? A friend loves at all times. What do you do when there's a knock at the door at an inconvenient time? A friend loves at all times. What do you do when a friend makes the wrong joke at the wrong time and it just grates on you. A friend loves at all time. What do you do when a friend has, uh, has hurt you and you have every reason to let them rot? A friend loves at all times. Bob Goff says it like this and I think this is brilliant. He says, love difficult people. You're one of them. I mean, seriously, there's going to be times where you're the difficult person and you've got to love them. In the New Testament, We find this being shown in a fantastic letter. Man, I'm getting sweaty. You were talking about sweaty church earlier. This is what this looks like. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, we find a letter written by Paul. And it's probably one of the most unknown letters written by Paul because it's only a chapter long. You can literally read it in about five minutes. It's a book called Philemon or a letter called Philemon. It's from one church leader, Paul, to another church leader, Philemon, about another man who is a difficult person. Onesimus, Onesimus, the difficult person. I mean, think about this for a second. In heaven, when we're all there and we're all pieing, we're having a good time, and Onesimus enters the room, think for a second how it's gonna feel for him to know that thousands of years after his death, he was still being used as an example of how to deal with difficult people. Now, just as a favor for him, when you hit heaven, don't mention it to him, just because he's going to have a rough couple of thousand years. That's a bit of an offshoot. But Onesimus was this difficult person. Um, We don't know exactly what he did. We were sort of led to believe that he may have stolen uh, from Philemon at some point. Philemon was his owner. He was a slave to Philemon. But whatever it was, whatever this conflict was, Omnisius ran away. And as he ran away, he came across Paul. We're not sure if it was intentional or not. But Paul raises him up. He befriends him. And he sends a letter back to Philemon, asking Philemon to take Omnisius back. This is what Paul uh, writes to Philemon. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Omnisius. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Omnisius hasn't been much use to you in the past. He's been a bit useless. But now he's very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. 
He is no longer like a slave to you. He is much more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean so much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. What Paul is saying is saying, Philemon, I know you owe this man nothing. I know he has been a difficult person. I know, I know, I know. But not only do I want you to take him back, which would have been just outrageous in Roman culture, I want you to take him back as an equal. What's so significant about the book of Philemon, one of Paul's writings, is throughout all of the letters that Paul wrote that we find in the New Testament, this is the only book where he doesn't explicitly talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And dare I say, I think it might even be intentional. The reason I think it's intentional, because he doesn't need to explain the death and resurrection of Jesus, because he examples it. He says, listen, I know this man owes you nothing. I know, he, uh, sorry, I know this man uh, has done all sorts of wrong, and he owes you everything. But I am going to pay the price for Omniscius. I am going to be the one that takes responsibility. I am going to be the one that joins the dots together and bring a union once more. Paul takes responsibility, just as Jesus did for us. Jesus paid the price, and one of the things that should be so unique amongst Christian friendships, I think, should be this, is that Christians should love at all times. Christian friendships should reflect the love that Jesus had for us. And so as we come to an end, this is what I want you to do. This is how we finish. This is your takeaway. How should a friend love at all times? I want you to ask yourself this question. It's one question. Who in my life do I need to show love to at this time? Who in my life do I need to show to at this time? Not who would it be easy. Not who would it be easy to love. Not who would it be that I normally love. Who is it that needs love at this time, perhaps more than anyone else? And once you answer that question honestly, when you get awkward with yourself and think, but that's just going to cause issues, when you answer that question honestly, I want you to go ridiculously creative, like silly creative. I want you to go completely awkwardly, intentionally over the top. This is not a challenge that texts someone and says, well, how can I help? This is assuming that you can help and doing it anyway, just being presumptive about it without permission. This is not just looking to pray for them in the quietness of your own home, but this is also inviting them around and getting the most expensive bottle of wine and the nicest steak and having them around for a meal. This is going and getting them the biggest bunch of flowers you can afford and knocking on their door and just saying, I thought that you could do with these. This is going to find the person that you normally find a little bit smelly and you go and you give them the biggest hug anyway. This is someone that you might find all to speak to for five minutes on a Sunday and arranging a whole day out with them. This is something that challenges you to go over the top, over the top, over the top. This is something in which you can say, I'm going to love you at all times. All times. How do you become a pro friend? A friend loves at all times. Let me pray for us. Father God, you created friendship Father, when you were on earth, when Jesus was on earth, I find it amazing that he didn't have a wife, he didn't have children, but he did decide to have friends. And who he decided to befriend, I find profound, Lord. 
that it wasn't the people that maybe would expect, it was the difficult people that he showed love to all of the time, all of the time, all of the time, in outrageous ways to the degree that he sent, uh, he, he sent himself to the cross, Lord, where he died. And Father, for us, there are people in our lives where it's just too awkward, where even this afternoon we'll wrestle with ourselves, whether we send the message, where we write the letter, where we do that thing that's on our heart, but Father, give us the boldness. Father, send us your spirit in order that we might uh, act in ways that are awkward and brilliant. But for some of us, Lord, we are in friendship groups that are influencing us in a way that we should not be influenced. We are in places and we've put ourselves in a wrong crowd of people that are not good for us. And so if that's us, Lord, where we've been influenced into other situations, help us to have that conversation. Help us recognize it within ourselves as well, Lord. Father, we love you. We want to worship you with our friendship. Amen. Thanks so much for listening today. We really value you being a part of this, and we'd love to keep the conversation going with you. So please link in with us through Twitter, through Facebook, through Instagram, at Forge Church. And please do tune in next week.